My name is Kelly Larson, and today's scripture reading comes from James chapter 4, verse 1 to 3. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. I get the privilege as a, one of the pastors here at this church to do pre-marriage counseling. And one of the topics that we always try to address is fighting. And that's not a very exciting topic. And every time I bring that up, it's kind of fun to see the reaction because they might, the couple might like look at each other and hopefully kind of smile. Uh, or maybe I, there's been some where there's been a, literally some kind of an argument uh, in process that we need to talk about. And one of the things, again, I learned this myself, this isn't new. One of the realities of a, if any relationship, doesn't matter what it is, but in marriage it's a good test case of this, it's not if you're going to fight. It's when and how. I mean, it's really what it comes down to. It's not the if. And I've rarely had a couple say that they've never had a fight. And when they do, I get a little nervous. That maybe one person's just kind of conflict averse and they never voice their opinion. Or the other is just so dominant they never hear. And there can be some kind of imbalance there. But fighting is inevitable. Fighting well, though, is the challenge. And James addresses that today in these three verses that Kelly just read for us. Just, just before we pray and ask the Lord to minister through his word, just, just, just some context. These, this text and the last one, they're, they're rougher. Like James is coming kind of hard. He was challenging the wisdom and, or, or maturity of, of, of you and me in the, in, the, in the verses we looked at last week. And in this particular set of verses, he's challenging how we engage with one another. There are selfish things that kind of stir us up and separate us. So beware, God's word is equally balanced between ministering to the brokenhearted and the hardhearted, right? And even in this text, I mean, think of it this way, even in this text, that might feel to some of us this sense of spirit-induced conviction or kind of reflection on this, the end goal is not to just put someone in their place, but that you would be the kind of brother or sister that edifies your brother and sister, that we would be a kind of church that's able to deal with differences and disagreements in a beautiful, God-honoring, sibling-loving way. So as much as this has a little bit of weight to it, like again, there's another challenge question at the beginning, the goal is ultimately what? Harmony, symphony, love, edification, this beautiful body of Christ. Like we just sang about that, right? The end of this amazing, one of those, the songs was like this testimony of the story of scripture of God coming in and resurrecting and the church of Christ was born. Like that's like one of the major symptoms of the work of God. And it's to that church that James now says, hey, I got to challenging question. Why in the world do you treat each other like that? 
Well, we want to hear that with the ultimate goal that we would reflect of kind of love and compassion and harmony that reflects the work of the Spirit among us. So let's pray as we prepare to look at these verses. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to hear your truth this morning. Would your spirit apply the text? As we ask regularly, Father, but we ask again today, would your spirit apply these words to us? Form us and shape us and mold us for the, for the good of one another and for the glory of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's that challenging question in the beginning of verse 1. James asked the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Now, what's interesting is, and you may not remember this, but I'll remind you, James wasn't written just to one particular church. It's not like he knows of a church that he's writing to specifically. Uh, in, in contrast from like the letter of, to the Corinthians, where it was one church that Paul was writing to, like literally calling people out by name. And there when he's talking about division, even if it's applicable to us by analogy, in that case it was specific to that local congregation. James was written intentionally to be spread around, around a large geographic region. So, so just what does that reflect? That clearly James, a pillar of the early church, was well aware that this kind of behavior was common among Christians. Remember, he was the pastor in Jerusalem to clearly a very Jewish congregation, and there were tons of conflicts with the Jewish Christians saying, why do we have to worship with these crazy Gentiles? And don't they have to abide by the Jewish purity laws, etc., etc.? Like, he was used to seeing those kind of conflicts. So he's writing this expecting Christians to be different in how they deal with with disagreements. Now again, he uses the language fights and quarrels among you. Maybe if I were translating it for us today in a world where it's not like he's writing to one particular church per county without cars, right? But now we have a marketplace of churches. Maybe he would frame it a little different way. He might say, why do you claim to be Christians yet you argue, ghost, and divide. Now, if you hadn't heard that term, ghosting, neither had I, until some of our younger staff, specifically Julia Carlson, educated me on this term. She once said the phrase ghosting, and I'm like, Casper? Like, what's ghosting? I have no idea. Ghosting is a relatively new colloquial term that refers to this, abruptly Cutting off contact with someone without giving, any, without giving that person any warning or explanation for doing so. In fact, technically speaking, even when the person being ghosted reaches out to reinitiate contact, it is common or likely that they are met with silence. Now, I had not heard that term before, but I had experienced that before. And the, the experience that I remember most vividly was not too long ago when COVID struck. And all the COVID debates that were so beautiful and lovely. And dear brothers and sisters in our very congregation, who I knew well and had worshipped here four years, would immediately disengage completely, not respond to any 
text, phone call, etc. Now, of course, what I'm describing, you may be well familiar with in just what you experienced in the cultural battles that we tasted in that perfect storm that we faced over the last few years between election controversies, racial conversations, and the whole COVID questions, right? I mean, what, what a mess. What a mess that was. And actually, our church saw what, I, what, what would be deemed, I think by everyone, as examples of poor behavior and quarreling and fighting, or again, our context, ghosting and dividing. That was unhealthy. It wouldn't be what God would want. Our, our church actually uh, was, was not as extreme as others. I, I'm part of a network of EFCA churches that are similar in size. And some of the stories I heard from other churches like ours in the Midwest was shocking. Fist fights between elders. Yeah, I mean, seriously. Like, I, I, we, we didn't have any of that. Or how about this? One pastor came in on a Monday morning after a Sunday, and there was a big jackknife stabbed into his office door. Not a welcome way to start your week. Again, those were among Christians in churches like ours right here in the Midwest. I'm not talking about some foreign planet. I'm talking about we, we, could, we could get there by dinner time and see the, 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 the indent in his office door, if you'd like. I mean, the reality is that was what was happening in our tradition, in churches and among Christians like us, where there was fighting and quarreling. There was ghosting, dis disengaging, kind of like a, like a, a shameful rebuke. I won't even deal with your purse anymore and massive division. Like, what causes that? The question James himself asked, but actually he asks it in a way that gives an answer. Look at the end of verse one. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Now, to be fair, to give a little bit of, little bit of behind the scenes in the Greek of this statement, Greek is able to answer a question even while it's asking it. In this case, it's actually answering with a positive answer. Now, you, you and I might do the same thing. I might, I might say to my son, hey, you got to get your homework done today. I need you to get it done by such and such a time because I need you to do this later. And then I find out like 30 minutes later, he's not doing his homework. So I could ask the pure question, aren't you going to do your homework? Or I could say, you're going to do your homework, aren't you? Now, notice that's in a question form, isn't it? But no one's wondering, I wonder what he thinks the answer should be. Like, clearly the answer is what? I better do my homework. Oh, because when I've said that before, how he'll go, oh, sorry, Dad. Why did he say sorry? If I was just asking a question, he would have just given an answer. But when I say, you're going to do your homework, aren't you? Oh, sorry, Dad. I'll get right on it. He knew that that was actually more of a command or, or, or a prescription, not just a, I'm just curious. Are you thinking about studying? So that is the nature of this question at the end of verse 1. James is not saying, I kind of wonder if they just come from like these internal battle things over desire. He's actually saying that if we were to translate it the most precisely with the Greek, it would be this. They, these fights and quarrels, they come from your desires that battle within you, don't they? Like he's wanting you to acknowledge that that is actually the, the source of where this comes from. So the point is, it's not just out there. What causes that is not just an out there thing. 
He's not denying that there are circumstances, that there are crises, that there are difficult topics to address. James would acknowledge all of those things. He is most concerned not with what the world is doing. He's most concerned with your internal response. So he doesn't just say, I I get it. There were some hard things to decide about. I I get it. Let's 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 just move on. He's like, no, look inside. There are, here's his language, desires that battle within you. That Greek word for desire is literally the word hedonism. We can talk about that pursuit of pleasure, but in this context refers to the lust of the human heart or the desires of the flesh. So desires, the NIV translates it, is a good way, those cravings. James is not referring to righteous passions or justifiable zeal, but desires that have run amok, desires that have extended beyond what is healthy. Let me give you some examples. We see excessive desire in our culture for leisure. And if run amok, it could turn into laziness and sloth. We see excessive desires for food. And if run amok, tempts us toward gluttony. We see excessive desires for drink, which again, tempts us toward alcoholism. We see excessive desires for intimacy, which tempts us to lustfulness and adultery. We see excessive desires for entertainment, screen time, which tempts us to binge on all kinds of forms of media. We see excessive desires for possessions, tempting us to overconsume and to be in debt. Now, none of those are shocking to any of you. In fact, almost guarantee we're not going to do show of hands. One of those examples that I listed, surely you can deal with, and you regularly do. It is a battle to know, to eat the right things, or to not be overly consumed in material desires, or to control screen time, or to make sure you're not procrastinating in your leisure, like those are battles we are all going to face. None of that's shocking. It's not just the context that does that. It's the battle within us for our desires. So these disordered desires, again, Vera beautifully summarizes it so well for our kids, but for all of us, right? Something that is gone beyond its proper place, something that moves us beyond God's prescription or instructions for us. There's nothing wrong with soccer or piano or whatever the example she gave. There's nothing wrong with those things. Sports is a great example. There's nothing wrong with that. Sports in our culture is now religion. So you have to work hard to make sure that you are not letting your desire for your little kid to be playing at Michigan on the basketball or football team, which is unlikely, but hey, you never know. But, it's, but to let that run so that it dominates 18 years of their life. So then their devotional life was actually disordered away from God in his proper place and more toward this excessive desire for athletic success. And those are hard to check, especially in us. They really are. So James then in verse 2 warns us that desires left unchecked will yield sinful behavior toward others. Like, if you don't watch this, 
you will actually not just stir within you these these desires that are disordered, they will impact other people around you. And then he uses language in verse two that's pretty harsh. Let let me read it and then I'll I'll talk about it. The, The first clause, you desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Now, that, that first clause, the killing, might sound a little harsh. And I don't think at all that James is actually trying to just say, hey, I've seen it happen. Like, you should have seen that parking lot fight over uh, credo and pedo baptism. It was bad. They, that's not what he's saying. He actually is using hyperbole. Hyperbole is when you exaggerate something to draw attention to it. The the Greek word, the root for hyperbole is to throw above. Like it was never intended to actually be an accurate, precise statement. It was thrown above, right? Hyper above, bole, throw. Throw above to exaggerate. So let's say you're playing catch and it looks like your partner's not paying much attention. So expecting just a normal throw right to his or her chest, you just ridiculously launch it over their head. What do they immediately do? They watch the ball and they, what's going on? You got their attention. Like they might have just been casually playing catch and then all of a sudden, what's going on? There's James. That's hyperbole. But there's more than that. This is the exact language Jesus used. He spoke about the way we talk to our siblings is murderous when it's filled with hate and rage and anger. And guess who Jesus said that to the most? You think he said that to the pagan Roman rulers? No, guess who he said that to the most? The religious conservatives. He used the same language to describe the way we speak to one another. Hate-filled speech is murderous, Jesus says. So when James says, you desire but you do not have, so you kill, he is winking at you the kind of judgment language that Jesus said specifically to him and the apostles during his ministry. These disordered desires are centered on the dangerous cancers of the human heart. That's why Jesus spoke against them so severely. It relates to what we looked at last time when James in chapter 3 verse 14 talked about bitter envy and selfish ambition. Think of it this way. Just picture this. Here would be my assumption of what I think the text is trying to say. At the heart level, brothers and sisters, you and I want control. We want things our way. We want the best things for ourselves. And we do not realize how much those desires run amok, gone too far, how those desires drive our thoughts our actions, and our relations with others. We don't realize that slowly and surely, like a cancer undetected, it is actually causing you to have thoughts, then actions, then relational dissonance or brokenness or ghosting because you literally are fighting for a sense of control and ownership and self-benefit. And you could just imagine the Lord saying, who do you think you are? 
And who do you think they are to whom you speak or act in this way? I, I, I mentioned that a perfect test case for the church in America in regard to these verses is the culture wars over the last few years. Over the last pretty much standard belief now that over the last hundred years, at least three generations, churches have not been catechizing their Christians, which is why we, again, with growth hours and other things, are trying to provide catechizing opportunities. I know that's a big C word. I do not care. We're going to use big C words. Catechizing is a classic church word that means we want to know the truth. We want to, be, we want to know God's word and be able to apply it to God's world. And that one word summarizes that and has been used for centuries. But if you looked at the quarrels and fighting in previous generations, it was actually not over the kind of stuff that we normally squabble over. It would have been things like this. It would have been battles over eschatology, maybe the role of Israel or something to do with the rapture or the millennium. It would have been things like different views of the atonement. Again, we might be thinking, what are the different views of the atonement? Exactly. We don't talk about that anymore. We're, we got, we're, we're, we're talking about politics most of the time, aren't we? We're not talking about that. Or open or closed communion, right? I mean, again, we may, some of us may have no idea what those debates are. Jonathan Edwards got fired over that. One of the most famous pastors in America got fired over open and closed communion. I probably won't ever get fired because most of us will never know what that even means. How about different views of baptism and the Lord's Supper? I mean, those were massive debates. The churches would wrestle with that. I'm not talking about gospel-centered issues. It's not, it's not about whether Jesus is divine or the Trinity is an actual proper depiction of God according to Scripture or the authority and inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture or, 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 or even some of the core doctrines regarding gender and sexuality and marriage, which again, which bump us into culture. I'm not talking about those debates. I'm talking about things that are clearly within the fence. They're all, they're all within the fence of biblical orthodoxy, things about which really good believers will disagree over. My, my, one of my closest friends, Darian Lockett, we studied together, we worked together for a long time. He, he, he uh, is a PCA Presbyterian. Not sure you could find a better denomination. It is, it is an absolutely biblical denomination. They have a different view of baptism than at least this EFCA pastor does. I, ever, I remember we would spend, I'm not joking you, days discussing this topic where we're reading Calvin and we're l looking at Bible passages and we totally disagree on some actually really small things that make him what's called a pedo-baptist and me a credo-baptist. But it's really small things. And, I'm not, and we are both clearly orthodox. And he goes to his PCA church and I go to this EFCA church. That, those are rarely things debated anymore. Now we debate this. Vaccine and mask options. Political leanings. <clears throat> How about this one? Race and race perceptions. Climate change and conservation priorities. Or different viewpoints on nationalism and globalism. That's what we're debating. Sadly, we're not debating the Bible much anymore. 
And we're not debating core issues that the Bible clearly addresses. We're dealing with secondary, if not tertiary, applications that are way complex and we're dividing completely and slandering one another as either woke, liberal, or fundy conservative. All of these are complex, complex issues, brothers and sisters, that require a careful reading of God's word. And hear this, none of these things are given clear guidelines from Scripture. That's right, vaccines, masks, political leanings, racial perceptions in the discussions today, climate change, nationalism and globalism, those are not cleanly described in Scripture. You have to do lots of interpretation, lots of deductions to be able to come up with a position that your brother and sister may disagree with and still be in the fence of biblical orthodoxy. And yet, if you don't disagree, if you don't agree with me or I don't agree with you, how should I respond? Should we fight and slander? Should, should I ghost you? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dislike you, unfriend you from Facebook because I'm not on Facebook. So I've already unfriended all of you. <laughs> or do we just divide and do our own thing? When we, when, we had, when we had the COVID situation here, I literally saw Christians who've been part of this congregation, some of whom have been part of it for decades, speak horrible things to one another completely disengage, not respond to any, any kind of communication, and shun, not speak. Look away that awkward moment in a Costco aisle where they don't want to see you. And yet, for years, I would serve them communion or sit at the bedside when their parent or spouse was dying. And they wouldn't even talk to me because of what? A mask mandate that I had nothing to do with. I don't work for the state of Illinois. I don't work for any presidential candidate. I have nothing to do with the county board or the village of Roscoe. But I, like you, was forced to engage with a very tough topic, like the masks. Who likes wearing masks? Anybody that does, I'd probably just want to slap them. You like wearing masks. I would go visit somebody and they're like, can you take your mask off? I'm like, I, I really want to just not only take the mask off but hug you right now, but I won't. Nobody liked the mask. I felt like a bank robber every time I went to Stillman. I mean, what is this? Nobody did. My kids didn't like it. We didn't. But it's complex. It bumps into things like your view of the relation. Here's me wanting us to think a little bit. Remember, it's not just about answers, but about questions. What is the proper relationship between the overlapping authority of the church and the state? That's a big question. When they asked us to put up a six-foot fence around the garbage, should we have said, hey, Christ is our king, we're not doing it? What about when they want us to check the elevator every year and we say, Christ is king, we live by faith? How about building codes? Like, again, I'm not trying to just be, but I'm like, those are good questions. Where do we draw the line? Elevator, garbage fence, building codes, masks, social distance. Where do you draw the line? Where do I? 
How about this? What about the, you're in my view of individual rights and liberties versus collective responsibility? That's complex. You could do a semester class on that. What is my right? But yet, what is my responsibility? And how do I balance that? Or what about different views of health concerns and protective measures? I'm not a scientist. I couldn't wait to get through science. I'm not a scientist. We've got scientific people. We've got doctors and other things. That's not me. I, I'm not an expert on that. I have an opinion. I have a, I have a desire. But again, we could disagree on that. We, we could both have some truth there. While all of these things, talking about masks, while all these things may result in firm and forceful conversations and even debate, here is the point. They should not lead to slanderous arguments. They should not lead to ghosting. And they should not lead to division. I literally will have people that still will not talk to me. I did not want to wear masks. I couldn't wait to throw them up. They won't talk to me as if I somehow evil, corrupt. That is not honoring our Lord, let alone me as their brother. So you can see why James is asking a bit of a pointed question. Why do you do this, Christians? You're just saying, and the church of Christ was born. Yeah, rah, 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 as long as you all agree with me. One Lord, this Corinthians. Remember, he's talking about division, Paul. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one response to mask mandates. Wish he'd put that in there. It doesn't mean we all agree on baptism, but Darian Lockett and I, the Credo and Pedro Baptist, we have one baptism. Even though he's at a PCA church and I'm at the FCA. Wouldn't it be great if we would not let those things divide? But that's going to require that your pride or mine, right, your disordered desires, your feeling of rights, your view of government response is tamed just enough so that me as your brother or we as your church family is actually important. If not, you're done. You're ghosting us. You slander us. You ignore us in the store. James ends with how to do this. And interestingly, he turns it toward prayer. He says at the end of verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask God. So notice, he, I think he's assuming we just live sometimes excluding God from the dynamic. And what we got to do is bring him in. In order to restrain disordered desires, the Christian must align their desires to God. He says you do not have because you do not ask. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. He's like, you guys are selfish prayers. I would hate that to be true. But I worry, again, James isn't just talking about one church so we can say, well, that was that church in the first century. No, James is a seeing this as a, as a trait, a symptom of sickness in the body of Christ. Is it still not true? Do we still pray with some selfish motives? While James is clearly rebuking 
selfishly motivated prayers, please hear this. He is not guaranteeing that the right motives will always get us what we ask for. One of the most famous blank check statements regarding prayer, I put in your notes there in John 14, 13 to 14. Here's what Jesus says. And I will do whatever you ask in my name. That, that sounds pretty blank check. Jesus says this to the church. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. And you, if you're thinking, that's serious. I'm starting with a Corvette and I'm moving to other. Like, I, wanted, I want you to notice a twice-repeated phrase, especially in that second one, but right after the word ask in verse 13 of John 14, and right after the word anything in verse 14, I will do whatever you ask in my name. Verse 14, you may ask me for anything in my name. Note that, twice stated. John makes clear that prayer must be prayed in my name, which means prayed in a way that aligns to the will of God. So prayer is not commands cloaked in the garb of a quest. Please, Lord, give me the new kitchen I've always wanted. I'm asking in your name. No, if you're asking in his name, you're submitting to him as Lord. The Christian who prays submits both to the power and the purpose of their request to God. Think, think of it this way. Christian prayer is both a seeking and a surrendering. Christian prayer is both an asking and a letting go simultaneously. Hard to do. Think, think our family hasn't prayed from my wife's sickness. Now think about that. Think about that demand. Seeking, surrendering. Asking, letting go. That sounds great in theory. That's really hard in practice. Now, when a Christian can live that way, now they have desires. Some of them may have run amok. God is saying, we must make sure that we are not directed by our pleasure self-seeking. We must work hard to submit all our desires and our pursuit of those desires to God's will and God's work. So Jesus says in Matthew 6, but seek first, he didn't say your kingdom and what you want. That's not Matthew 6, memorized by Awana. That'd be the non-Awana version. Matthew 6, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So let me end with a pastoral recommendation. It's not the, it's, it's a, uh, it's my prescription from God's word, it's not from the Lord directly, it's just my application for this. I'm calling it the ABCs of fighting well in the church. Again, it's not if, it's, it's when and how. So here's the A, ask. When you have a point of contention or a disagreement with someone in the church or with the church, 
do this. Commit to, spe- commit to spending some time before the Lord evaluating the issue. Ask some questions like this. Do I understand the position of the person or the church? Again, several of the people that got upset at COVID spoke to no one. I didn't even know they were upset until I would try to call. And they would send me back a harsh, mean text. I had no clue. There was no conversation whatsoever. Do I understand the position of the person or the church? Is the issue, how about this one, is the issue clearly and explicitly addressed in Scripture? Like, is it, they're clearly going against God's word. Like, Romans 17, verse 5, you never wear a mask in corporate world. Okay, there's no, there's only 16 chapters in Romans. But I mean, is it, if it's clearly there, point it out. They should submit to Scripture. If it's not, well, now it's just got a little more complex. And maybe even asking this, could there be any motivations within me that could be causing me to misunderstand or, or to overreact? Who's, who's willing to ask those questions about themselves? Say to my, say to my spouse or your spouse, I'm really upset about this. Why do you think I'm so upset? Or in confidence to somebody, I'm really frustrated with this. Check me. Is there something in me that's maybe facilitating that in an unhealthy way? That would be so Christian to do. Uh, All our kids have played sports at Roscoe Middle School, and I love how at least the basketball team has this Wonderful rule, they always make clear to the parents in that parent meeting, and they call it the 24-hour rule. Maybe other teams do too. First time I heard it with, with, with my boys started playing at Roscoe Middle School. They're like, if you're angry with something or frustrated with a coach, you do not come up to them right after the game. Now, you give it 24 hours so that you cool down and maybe get a little bit better perspective rather than run up, why did my kid not get into the fourth quarter or whatever the case may be. I love that rule. Because I've been at these middle school games, and half the time I'm actually turning sideways because the parents are super entertaining to watch. (laughs) It is very entertaining and horribly embarrassing. So the reality is that 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 kind of ask, pause, ask, self-reflect might do well to say, i got to deal with that end of verse 1, the desires that battle within me first, to make sure. That I might have a legitimate question, legitimate concern, but I'm going to raise it calm, and I'm going to remember the person to whom I speak is my sister or my brother. The, the B of the ABCs of fighting well is bring. Don't ghost. <laughs> Don't do that. Pursue a conversation with the person that strives to understand the issue from all sides, and just as importantly, strives to connect the issue to God. Like, how might God want us to think about this and think about the realities and the implications of it? Let's have that conversation. This might include other church members that, with whom there was conflict or even some of the pastor elders. Have the conversation. Is this issue a core biblical doctrine or is it something secondary, tertiary? Is, is it worth, like would Christ say, that's a good reason to split? Is this issue worth the public testimony of disharmony? I have been blown away by the negative impact of churches in our tradition and the witness we gave to the world. We've done a lot of damage. 
And I don't mean we, Hope Church. But the American evangelical church has not done well in being slow to speak and slow to become angry. We've been quick to speak and already angry. And I'm not sure that reflects our Lord Jesus Christ at all. The last, the, the C of ABC, compromise. That can sound like a bad word, but let, let me put it in context. If agreement cannot be reached and the issue is not a heresy or an issue that necessitates relational or church separation, then an agreement should be reached that shows respect to both the person and their perspective. To slander, to ghost, or to divide in this case would be from pride, not from principle. You wouldn't need to do that. If you do, it's pride. In short, you're sinning. He who knows what to do and does not do it sins. The word compromise is the combination of two words. Take off the word calm and there's the word promise. And the word calm means together. Promise together. It's actually a word historically used for marriages. The two people would promise together that in sickness and in health, on good days and bad days, whether rich or poor, what do we promise together to do? To love one another. Now imagine if our membership commitments at church had that promise together. Imagine if before the Lord we felt that kind of promise together. So don't hear compromise that are just squabbling and trying to shove things to the side. It is agreeing to say, we have to go forward with some kind of practice, whether it be masks or whatever, whatever the, whatever the issue is. We need to find a way to accept and appreciate and understand and do things well. I wonder if, I wonder if in the future, if we were to address some of these topics, what it would be like if we stopped and did these things. COVID didn't give much of an opportunity, but it gave quite a lesson. But imagine if a church like ours was going to deal with some of these tough cultural issues, like race issues, tough ones, right? What if we decided, hey, for the first three months, we're just going to pray. We're just going to pray. Lord, help us to love one another. Help us to understand properly. Show us our own sin. Show us clarity from your word and ways that are implicit and judgments the scripture makes. Help me not to think poorly of someone. God, check my heart. What if we spent a Saturday and we 24-hour prayer and everyone was signing up and we're asking people to fast if they're able and we're literally preparing ourselves so that when we come in Sunday and we address the topic, what's the posture? You're not with your boxing gloves on. You've just joined in months and now a weekend of prayer and now you say, now let's have some conversations. But I look at you as my brother or my sister, not as my opponent. I don't speak about you like the media does. Because as we sang a few minutes ago, all that Christ did led to, and the church of Christ was born. And how beautiful would that church be if it's God's children living as one family one Lord, one faith, one baptism, symphony of all these different people 
We get the diversity thing. It's the symphony that's the hard part. Symphony to anti-vaxxers, anti-maskers, and people that work for Fauci, all in the same room, singing praises to King Jesus. Because even if they don't agree on all the details, they love the Lord Jesus Christ above all else. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to change, to see our ways, to repent. Father, for some of us that might just be realizing that battle within us, those desires that need to be silenced or rebuked or pushed against. Father, we ask for wisdom like you just have talked about in this book, the wisdom of knowing how to respond to very tough issues when we've actually been catechized more by TV news than by your church and your word. Oh, help us, Father. Help us to change, to morph, to redirect as needed. And especially for Hope Evangelical Free Church, may we be a place that's willing to fight well because they know that we have one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Father, thank you for your word, which even when it is firm with us, it is guiding us graciously to be the kind of people that you're forming us to be. And we, for that, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.